The reading this morning is from 1 Kings 3 to 5 on page 519 of the Church Bibles and on the screen. Solomon asks for wisdom. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not been uh, yet built for uh, for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, but that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honour, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. Well, thank you very much. And if you keep your Bibles open, you'll see in your leaflet an outline of where we're going. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you we can sit under it now. What we do not know, please teach us. What we are not doing, please help us to be obedient. 
what we do not love, please inflame our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder what you would ask for if God gave you the same open offer that he gave Solomon. I will give you whatever you ask. What would you, what would you answer him? Honestly, you know, would you say money, more money? That would make life much better. Long life, is that what you'd say? A healing. For most Australians, they're the answers. Some might add, if you're younger, superhero powers, right? Which really means beating your enemies and being famous. That's what God expected Solomon to say. Riches, long life, victory over enemies, fame. He says, because you didn't ask for these things, I'm going to give them to you. So he expected Solomon to say this. Now, all of those things are things about us. But if we were to answer differently, think about the answer differently, if we were to think beyond our own needs, what we want, to what really would make a difference for the world, what would you ask for? It's very hard to think what would make the biggest difference. You know, would it be a solution to climate change? Uh, would it be a great medical advance? Would it be a new way to grow food very quickly that third world countries could do and poverty would be largely eliminated? You know, but even if you had those, would that really improve things? Because then you'd need international government support, wouldn't you, and commitment to roll it out. You need wisdom in knowing what to ask for. A while ago, I was um, at a party. I was in the backyard um, around a fire. I was speaking to someone who I'd never met, and he was a, <clears throat> um, a water engineer who worked in uh, the top part of South Australia. And he was constantly frustrated because people in Adelaide, people, government officials, would make decisions which would change the parameters of his work, and they didn't know what was best. He on the ground thought he knew what was best, but it was, he was being governed by people who weren't wise in that area. Wouldn't it be great if we had leaders who really were experts in their field, who had insight to manage people, and they had capacity to deal with all the complexities of the issues around? I said, you know, what you're longing for is what the Bible talks about and what Christians hope for. You're longing for the kingdom of God, which is ruled by Jesus, who has both the wisdom to govern, to make consistently the best decision, and also the righteousness of character so that he wouldn't be corrupt and use his power to serve his own ends. You know, if we want to know what the kingdom of God, ruled by a wise and righteous king, might look like on the ground, the best example we have in the Bible, aside from Jesus, is Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 3 and 4, where Solomon reigns as the king over God's kingdom who's endowed with wisdom. Now, this is the high point, right? It's a high point in the moment of human history so that later when Jesus tells his followers to pray, your will be done, this is the picture of God's will being done fleshed out. So we're covering two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, two steps. Chapter 3 is about the need for a wise king. Chapter 4, you see the wise king ruling, but you get a sense of the difference that he makes to the people around the world. First of all, the need 
for a wise king. If you look in your Bibles, at the very, very start of chapter 3, Solomon is king. He makes an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, by marrying his daughter. Now, that might seem smart because it cements peace between the nations. But if you know your Bible at that point, your warning sign is flashing because God had already told his people in Deuteronomy chapter 7 not to marry foreigners. Why? Not because foreigners were less people, but because marriage is a package deal. Foreigners don't worship the God of Israel. They worship their own gods. You marry a foreigner and they will turn your heart away. The Lord's anger will burn against you. Here is Solomon, the king of God's people, marrying Pharaoh's daughter. What on earth is he thinking? This is not wise. Another example. The law also says in Deuteronomy 12 that people were not to worship the Lord at the high places where the previous inhabitants of the land used to worship by making offerings to their gods. Um, God said that those, things are to be, those places were to be destroyed. He says instead they must seek the place where the Lord alone would put his name and, and worship the Lord there and there alone. Here's Solomon showing his love for the Lord by obeying his father's David's, David's instructions. That's good. That's wise. But he's also offering sacrifices and burning incense at the high places. This is not wise. In marriage and in worship, two heart issues, he has disobeyed God and he lacks wisdom. Clearly, he thinks it's okay, even smart to ignore God's commands when we know Marriage and worship are matters of the heart. Wrong steps here can lead people to turning away from God in their heart. So the chapter starts with Solomon clearly needing wisdom. By the end of chapter 3, Solomon has extraordinary wisdom. At the end, last verse, all of Israel held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. So how does he get it, right? He gets wisdom because of God's chesed offer, right? Chesed is a Hebrew word. It occurs often in the Bible. It's the word used to describe God's character, his overflowing, over-the-top, gracious generosity that he loves to pour out on people he loves. Um, when you say it, you've got to get the kind of saliva throwing. We're going to, we're going to uh, say it after three. I want you to say it with me. Okay, one, two, three. Chesed. Very good. All right. God shows chesed love to Solomon because even though Solomon is worshipping in the wrong place, his heart hasn't yet turned away. And after offering a thousand burnt offerings, the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Now, please understand, he hasn't ever said this to anyone before. This is totally unprecedented, right? And it comes on top of God's kindness, his chesed kindness, that he has already shown to Solomon by making him king. Verse 6, Solomon says, You've shown me great chesed to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great chesed to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. So Solomon knows, he's experienced God's chesed love for him, his grace, his massive, undeserved, flowing out of kindness to him. And on that basis, then he answers the question. He says, I'm only a little child. I don't know how to carry out my duties. Your servant here 
among the people. Your, sorry, your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count a number. So please give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? He needed wisdom and he knew that he needed it. And can I say, I can sympathize with Solomon, right? I've come to this church. People say, how's it going? I say, good, but I don't even know what I don't need, what I don't know. You know, like <laughs> I still feel in free fall. Um, I need wisdom. In James 1, we're told, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given you. This last week, I spent four days uh, with other Trinity Network pastors learning about team pastoring from people who'd managed to multiply the size of their churches through evangelism and making disciples and leaders, setting goals, forming teams, actually doing hard work. And that instead of shrinking, instead of even just maintaining the size of their church, they'd actually grown. Isn't that amazing, right? And it was massively helpful. Now, Solomon could have asked for fame, he could have asked for long life, could have asked for riches. He didn't. He asked for wisdom. He knew he lacked it. He felt the weight of grace in being appointed king of the kingdom of God. So he asks for wisdom. This pleases God. And so verse 11, God says to him, since you've asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I'll give you what you've asked. And I'll also give you all the other things you didn't ask for, but could have wealth and honor so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Now in verse 15, God's said kindness once again immediately changes Solomon's life. Now he is worshipping rightly, no longer at the high places, but in Jerusalem before the Ark of the Covenant in covenant relationship with God, in obedience to God. Which means that now he is really ruling as the king of God's kingdom because he is a king who is under God, in relationship with God. And the wisdom that he now rules with is astounding. And it's illustrated in that famous story of the two prostitute mothers, which I sort of told in the children's talk. Obviously, he never intended to cut that baby in half, but he applies two insights. Number one, about the strength of a mother's love, that greater than even a mother's desire to be with her child is her desire to save the life of her child, right? And secondly, the insight about the intensity of personal loss, that when we suffer for what we think is no good reason and others don't, it can warp our sense of justice. So we'd rather drag other people into our experience of unjust suffering than for us to just suffer alone, right? The wisdom of Solomon is not just to understand these two things, but in the moment of need to bring them together with astounding clarity and insight and um, apply them so that not only he sees the truth, but actually the truth of what's right and what's wrong is clear to everyone there. It's astounding wisdom. Imagine if our leaders in government had that sort of wisdom, right? There would be no need for an opposition because everyone would go, yeah, that's right. What you've just decided, that is exactly right. You've helped us see it. 
fantastic. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, imagine what the world would look like. We, well, we see it actually in chapter 4. We don't need to imagine. Verse 1, Solomon ruled over all Israel. Now, chapter 3 is about Solomon becoming wise. Chapter 4 is about what the reign of this wise ruler looks like. And it's more than interesting, it speaks to us because we're part of the story which has started back with Abraham when God promised to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. By the end of chapter 4, for the first time, people from all the nations are now coming to listen to Solomon's wisdom. They are sent by all the kings of the world who have heard of his wisdom, right? So what God promises Abraham has now come true blessing of God's descendant of Abraham's descendants is now overflowing to the nations and blessing is coming to the world and through this chapter God is teaching us about the international scope of blessing that will come through Jesus the son of Solomon who overflows with the wisdom of God okay so if the blessing brought through Solomon points us to the blessing brought through Jesus. What does wisdom look like when it's applied by Solomon? We'll have a look. First of all, he has a well-organized structure of delegated leadership under him. So on the first level, he has his own supporters and advisors, verses 2 to 4. Under them, verses 4 to 6, are those who head up national worship, the, uh, those who organize all the district governors. He has an advisor. He has someone over the palace administration. He has a human rights commissioner for the forced labour people, right? And then under them are the 12 district governors whose job it was was to supply provisions for the king and his household for a month. What's the effect? Verse 20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. That's the effect of wisdom people experiencing in their lives the blessing of God where the promises to Abraham are being fulfilled in detail in the establishment of a kingdom so rich with blessing it overflows to the nation so that verse 21 Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River right in Iraq to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt that's down south so these countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life not because they were enslaved by Solomon, but because they were blessed by honouring Solomon the king. Chase this through in the Bible. 900 years later, kings would also come from the east and lay their tribute of gold and frankincense and myrrh in worship of the child king named Jesus, Solomon's greater son. Not because they were slaves and they had to, but because the birth of the Christ child meant good news for them and they knew it, they knew it, the blessing would overflow. And so significant is this picture in God's plans that it's used to describe heaven. In Revelation 21, when we're in the new Jerusalem, the city of God, we're told the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Nations bringing tribute to the king of the kingdom of God because by the king reigning, God's chesed blessing overflows to people from every nation. What made the difference? Verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight. Right? His wisdom was deep. 
And a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. His wisdom was wide. It was beyond comparison. Verse 30, Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Karkol, and Dada, the sons of Mahol. His fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life. From the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Now, think back to that conversation I had with that uh, water engineer around that fire at that backyard party. Later on, I was sharing that conversation with my mum. She asked me how my week's gone. I just told her what the conversation was. She, I said, we need a leader, you see, who's an expert across the fields, who has the wisdom to know what's best in every situation so that they don't make dumb decisions. And we need a righteous leader, um, you know, uh, as well. She said to me, well, don't get me started about that. You know, our current leaders, what they're there for their own interests, even if they're not siphoning money, they make decisions just so they can get re-elected. All right? Self-serving. We need uh, leaders who will make the decisions for the long term, for the good of people. She said, but who would we trust to such a position? Everyone thinks of themselves. And then I said, yes, well, actually, the reason why the founding fathers of American democracy um, uh, thought up the, the system of voting and voting people in and out was not not because they thought that the majority opinion was always the right one, but because they realised they needed to have a mechanism to get um, presidents out of office because their tendency is to be self-serving. Wisdom alone isn't enough, actually. You need righteousness as well, selflessness and inability to be corrupt. Only then would we be happy having a leader remain in power? Solomon had wisdom, but was there righteousness? Look at verse 26. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Now, I don't know how many horsepower is in your garage, right? But Solomon's garage beats, beats us all. And yet it's against God. Back in Deuteronomy 12, God said... When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. That's what God commanded, right? It's not that he's against horses, right? Okay. Um, Solomon broke God's command. The reason why the Lord made the command was because the Lord was to be the king's strength, not horses. God knows men, doesn't he? He knows men. He knows what we boast in. He knows our toys, our powerful toys. He knows what we'd like to have in the garage as a sign of our strength, our power, our masculinity, it's a delusion, isn't it? It's an absolute crock. 
Solomon stocked his garage with Egyptian horsepower. What's it saying that the Lord is his strength? No, it's saying instead of choosing the Lord as his strength, Solomon has chosen chosen symbol of his strength, comes from a nation to which Israel was once enslaved, a nation that God brought them out of, a nation about whom God said, you are not to go back that way again. Solomon fails the whiff test. You know the whiff test? Like that? You know, a leader might boast about what they're going to do, but how does it smell when you look at their actions? Wise? Humble before God? Obedient to God? Fail, Solomon. Solomon may have wisdom, but he lacked righteousness. That's why I love Jesus. Apply the whiff test to him. Wise? Oh. (laughs) Humble before God? Wow. Obedient to God? Oh, yes. Solomon's wisdom and lack of righteousness shine a big spotlight on Solomon's greatest son, Jesus, the king who came after Solomon. Solomon's wisdom points us to Jesus' wisdom. Solomon's failings in obeying all that God said point to Jesus' complete righteousness. And this matters for us, friends. Deep down, what do we want? You know, the guy I met around the fire, my mother, you know, what do they want? They want a leader who is both wise and able to govern with wisdom and someone who's righteous. And that is our hope. You know, the relevance of Jesus to us is not just that he gets us forgiveness. That's just for starters. It's, because, it's that he's the king that we long for, you see. That's why when Jesus came, he came proclaiming the good news of a kingdom, a kingdom of God. He will rule in both wisdom and righteousness because both Christ's wisdom and righteousness secure us a place in the kingdom of God. You know, you think about it. Christ's wisdom, it was different to everyone else's. He saw that his greatest work, more than his miracles, more than his healings, more even than his teachings or preaching, was to set his face towards Jerusalem. He had this wisdom. Everyone thought he was crazy, but he said, no, this is where I must go. I must give myself to allow myself to be crucified because in the foolishness of that act is God's wisdom. Christ saves us from an otherwise certain hell and he opens up for us entrance into the kingdom of God. We need a king who has different wisdom, perfect wisdom. And righteousness, you know, that without Christ's righteousness we'd be stuffed. It's by perfectly obeying his father that he was able to give his life for ours as full payment for all of our sin to save us from hell and secure for us heaven. We need Christ, wise, righteous. What should we conclude? Well, you might look at the end of 1 Kings 4 and hear about Solomon's wisdom, the breadth of it, the depth of it. And you might think, well, doing God's will for us now would mean to become an expert in creation, to become an expert in science, a horticulturalist, an economist, 
to become an expert in literature or music because isn't that what wisdom looked like for Solomon? And so wouldn't the best thing be for our kids and for us as a church to pursue excellence in the arts or science or technology to make the world a better place to live in? No. If that's our take-home message from these chapters, we've missed the whole direction of Solomon pointing us to Jesus. That is not where these chapters are pointing us. In the macro storyline of the Bible, Solomon as king points us to Jesus as king. Solomon's kingdom foreshadows Jesus' kingdom. Solomon's wisdom points us to Jesus' wisdom, who in his wisdom forsook the world because of the eternal realities of heaven and hell and the kingdom to come. That is his priority. I want you to... I was trying to work this out this week. I want you to imagine two concentric circles, right? You've got a big one and a small one. The big circle represents creation. All the people in the world are in that circle, including us. God's will for everyone in that circle, made in God's image, right, which is everyone, is to use their gifts to care for the world and develop the world as people made in God's image. This is his creation mandate, you know, rule the world. Don't just exist in it. Develop it, use your skills, use your technology, use your expertise, rule it. As the Bible unfolds, we see that this also means coming under Christ's saving rule because he is the king of all creation. That's God's desire for everyone in the big circle in creation. But the small circle represents redemption. And in it are all Christians, right? The church is in it. The people of God, those redeemed by Jesus' blood. And doing God's will for them, okay, has more focus and more urgency and a more kind of specialised yeah, focus. Because when Jesus came, you see, he announced more than just this world. He announced the coming of a greater reality, the kingdom of God. And he stressed an urgency. The time has now come. The kingdom of God is at hand. People need to repent and believe the good news. He didn't spend all his time honing his skills to become a master carpenter. Though he could have. He left his carpenter's workshop because he believed in the eternal realities of judgment and of the kingdom of God. Those realities are greater and more pressing than being successful or thriving here in our professions. This is not to say that it's wrong to have a profession. I needed a plastic surgeon to sew up the tendons in my hand. I need a doctor to help me with my throat. We need truck drivers to deliver food to Woolies so we can go and buy it, right? We, we do contribute. We have a foot in this creation. But there is a focus that only the redeemed people of God have, and it would be foolish of us to think that doing God's will just means to excel in every area and neglect the focus. The focus is put out in Jesus' great commission. Our job is to go and... Is to, is to go and make disciples of all nations and to take those eternal realities seriously. This is God's agenda for the world. No one else will do it. We might be experts in other things, but that is to be our main priority. That is God's desire. Jesus made it clear. Paul makes it clear. 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we are convinced. 
And Christ's love compels us. We are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So no, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view just as part of the creation. That's it. No, no, no. We think with spiritual insight. And so he said, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the main agenda. God desires that that smaller circle, right, that set, grow in size. That is his desire. This is why Jesus hasn't come yet. He wants that smaller circle to grow in size, to eclipse more and more people in that bigger circle. That is why God has placed us here as a church. That is why this afternoon at 2pm we will be out on Stirling Oval, outside of this building, with our eyes up to God and up to the people round about and praying for them and our effectiveness to grow the circle. That's what it means for us to be wise, to no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view, to believe that the eternal realities of heaven and hell that Jesus believed and Paul preached on really are real, and to realise that God's desire for us as a church is to make disciples of people. We need to pray. We need to pray that we would desire what God desires so that we would do his will. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the clarity that the Bible gives. Thank you that we have a foot in this creation, but also a foot in the new one. And we thank you, Father, for this particular mandate that we have been given. Help us to take it seriously and forgive us for when we get distracted. In Jesus' name, amen.